So, Valerie, thank you so much for joining us for Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here and uh, excited to talk with you about my strange and dark books. I love that you <laughs> describe them in that way, and I absolutely love being read to. So uh, this feels like an extra big treat because you'll be reading to us from both books, which is like double the fun, double the terror, <laughs> maybe. So I guess can we start first? We'll start with To the Bones. Can you tell us a bit about To the Bones and what led to writing it? Well, a couple of things. One is I I spent many years in West Virginia as a police reporter and an environmental reporter. So I had a lot of background in in the, the problems of the coal industry. And I had finished a book, which was actually Backwater, which so this ended up being written and published before Backwater. So I was complaining to a friend that I couldn't get started on a new book. I just couldn't get an idea. And I was, you know, complaining. And and at one point it came up, I don't remember how, that I said, I always said if I was going to kill someone in West Virginia, I'd throw them down a mine crack. And he said, well, do it. Which, of course, that was all I needed because the spark was, oh, okay. Well, the person can't be dead because then there's no plot. So there's somebody down a mine crack. Why is he in the mine crack? What has he done? How does he get out? What happens from there? Who put him there? So all of those questions, then, you know, the story just started to flow from that point. So that's what I did and drew on my experiences as a a farmer in West Virginia. I had, in fact, a mine crack in the backfield, but I would not have thrown somebody in my mine crack. I would have (laughs) thrown somebody else's mine crack. (laughs) I, I love that this is something that you've given a lot of thought to. Like, I've always said, if I were to kill someone, it would be like, I don't see how the police don't come up. Like, um, about the mind crack. Can we talk to you a little bit about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, people disposed of things in them like deer carcasses. Oh, wow. Because some of them were very, very deep and inaccessible. So it just seemed to me natural. I, I, I kind of had that in my head thinking, you know, that would be a thing. And then, but not yours. It would be someone else. That would be too close to home. (laughs) So with that in mind, could we have a reading, please? Well, I'm going to start with, uh, with poor Derek, who is the man in question. Horrible smell. Dark. Cold. This is how it feels to be dead. Derek raised his head and immediately vomited. The nausea came in waves at every motion of his battered head, echoed by his back, ribs, legs. If he was dead, and this was the afterlife, then it seriously sucked. He breathed in through his mouth, but it didn't help much. Smell. He tried moving his left leg, numb and twisted under him, and was surprised when it responded. The pressure on his knee eased. He rolled over, put his hands down to push himself to all fours, and his fingers slid in something greasy and vile. If this was the afterlife, then it wasn't one he'd been prepared for by catechism classes or college philosophy. He shook with the dark and the cold. Then I'm not dead. He crawled, carefully anchoring his knees into the sloping ground, pausing when the nausea roiled his gut. Unsteady rocks shifted under his knees, and he heard a skittering sound. The last thing he remembered, he'd been driving. A two-lane road, the trees so close, 
an inky tunnel pierced by his headlights. Maybe the car went off the road. Maybe you're buried, his unpleasant thoughts mocked. There was a faint lessening of the gloom ahead. He kept crawling, sticks rolling under his hand. Something chitinous and leggy moved across his fingers, and he pulled his hand away and put it back down. The thin gray light increased. He could see that, if not much else with his glasses gone. And his shoes were gone, the toes of his socks dragging across the damp rocks. He seemed to hear things breathing nearby, waiting. No one's coming back for you, ever. He crawled around a ragged corner. The light became a crack in the sky, a white intensity that squeezed shut his eyes and made the back of his head spasm in pain. He opened his eyes just enough to see a hazy field of rocks and debris, a dump. He picked up a large, round object and brought it close to his weak eyes. A pair of empty eye holes stared back. He flung the skull away, hearing it crack, and rolled to a stop, and he realized those rocks and sticks were bones, and that he was among the dead. Wow, so vividly described. And it's funny, because when you were talking about the whole throwing a body into the <laughs> into the mind crack, I was thinking about the smell. <laughs> and like, if that wouldn't be one, you know, one possible reason to not throw it in the crack, you know, on your own property. Right. And so it's really like, you started us off with those vivid senses and so yes the answer is if you were to throw a body in one it shouldn't be in yours because it's going to smell (laughs) what what a lovely introduction to that vivid description into that scene so thank you so much for that and then we're going to skip to your newest book in the lonely backwater and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about it. So the main character, I thought it was really interesting. So she sails and you've been a sailor. And so because I'm nosy, I'm curious about what other elements of your life and your experiences, what lend themselves to this book? You know, that's true. Our, our life experiences, at least um, for me, that's where all everything comes from. Mm-hmm. So in this book, Maggie is a 16, 17-year-old girl living with her father on a houseboat in a sort of ramshackle marina on a lake in North Carolina. And she spends a lot of her time either wandering around in the woods, picking up bugs and leaves and sticks and looking at things, or out on her little boat, which she adores, and which gives each of them gives her a kind of freedom. She can get away from the problems she has, which her mother ran off and left the family and her father has Mm -hmm. dissolved into drink. And so she's left kind of running the marina and taking care of her daddy. Mm -hmm. And so these are her escapes. I was lucky and had a lovely and intact family, but (laughs) I was a odd and lonely child, not lonely, a loner. And Mm -hmm. I spent much of my time in the woods picking up rocks and sticks and bugs. Uh, I love nature and being out in nature. So definitely Maggie has a lot of me in her in that she is kind of a, a woods child. And the sailing came later. I always wanted to do it and never had the opportunity. And then quite late in life, I decided, well, I'm going to learn. And so I did. 
and learned on little boats. And then I did do a little sailing on bigger boats. I got a couple of sailing certifications for the ocean. So then arthritis intervened and it just didn't become possible anymore for me. So I, I quit sailing, but I still miss it and love it. And I think you can see that in in Maggie. So those are a couple of elements that that feed into the book. The most specific thing that started it was that I found my old senior year yearbook from high school. And in it was uh, where people are inscribing, you know, the silly things they do, you know, always have fun and remember me. <laughs> and so I, I had that yearbook and there was an inscription on, on a, a person's face that I did not remember. We only had a class of 100. My memory oh, is... Wow garbage. My memory's <laughs> terrible. I didn't remember her. But it referenced an argument and that she hoped we could get past that. And mm. so that sparked, again, you get that one idea and that idea being those high school arguments, which seem so deep and traumatic. And that even though she had, she and I had had some kind of problem, she had signed it love. So it just intrigued me. And then I started thinking about that and what could, you know, what's Maggie, you know, what, what kind of situation would a young woman be in like this? And the things came together, the, the woods, the sailing, and then this idea of a conflict between two young women in high school. And that was the, the genesis uh, of the book, Maggie, right from the get go, the first you know, the, the start of the book, her beautiful cousin, Charisse, whom she had had an argument with, uh, has disappeared. So. You know, I hope that whoever that person was in the yearbook, I hope that she either reads or she hears <laughs> that and she's like, you know what, because poor thing, right? We think of like all these, like however long it's been that you just, you know, you've, you've hated her and you've been thinking about this, this argument every day for like, for years. And, and like, she's just on your, like, do not, you know, do not ever talk to list. And you're like, wow, you know what? I actually have no idea who this person is. I don't remember what this argument is about. And she's going, oh my gosh, Valerie still hates me. And you're like, yeah, I wonder who this was. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. I, I heard once that that the secret to a successful, a happy life is to have good health and a terrible memory. And it works for me. Yeah. Terrible yeah. memory. You know, this stuff just goes, it's all gone, you know? Oh, I love that. So with that in mind, could we have a reading from this book, please? Okay. In, in this chapter is fairly early on, but it's not the very beginning. Uh, she's uh, out at the end of the dock with her friend, Nat. She's, a gender non-performing, hangs out with guys, doesn't exactly know about herself. And so they're sitting out there talking about this problem of Charisse, who disappeared and then was found actually at the marina on a boat. So things have come very, very close to home. Matt didn't say anything, so I did. How was the funeral? People noticed you weren't there, he said. Dad tried to make me go. He said people would talk. I said I didn't care and he couldn't make me. Your choice, I guess. People were talking about your fight. Kids, anyway, not the old folks. I imagine they turned her into a saint. Gobs of flowers, table full of pictures, sappy music, yeah. But you still got to feel sorry for her parents. I didn't have an answer to that. So why did you so what did you tell Van about what happened? What part? You know, Cherise showing up at Old Trinity Church was about the last thing any of us had expected. 
She'd come wheeling up in the jag, staggering in to find someone to talk to where she knew we'd be. Hey, guys, she said, weaving over the fresh-cut grass of the graveyard to where we sat. Hulky let her have the big robard stone he always sat on, then hovered. Nat and I sat opposite her on each end of the Brackenbell tomb. She sang a couple of slurred lines from Beauty and the Beast. You can guess what role she had in our production. And kicked her feet, her painted toenails glittering where the moonlight showed through, her ankles white and the bottoms of her feet black. Where's your shoes? Hulky asked. One here, one there. She lifted her legs in a gymnast pose until her beaded dress slipped to the tops of her thighs and Nat got up and walked away into the dark under the cedar trees. Here, Hulky pulled up his shoes and socks, set them down beside her, his favorite Chuck Taylors. Maggie has all the boys, Cherise said. Yeah, I muttered. No, it's true. You have boys, she dragged out. And you have friends. You have boyfriends. Cherise, just go home. I could drive you. Hulky, of course. Cherise shook her head slowly and emphatically, one side to the other and back, like something mechanical. Why'd you come here, Cherise? I asked. She kept staring into the trees. You don't want anything to do with us in the daylight. She didn't answer me, just talked into the dark. I thought maybe we should bury the hatchet. That didn't make me feel any more comfortable. We'd been cutting eyes at each other for weeks, got into arguing loud and heavy by our locker one day until she said one thing too many and I slapped her. Then she made those comments on my Facebook page, calling me a sad, pathetic liar and me commenting back. Harder. She stood up, teetering for a moment from the uneven ground or her uneven equilibrium. Actually, she said, I'd rather kiss and make up. She put her hands on my shoulders. She leaned forward. I could see the peach lace through the gash in the front of her dress. She leaned in, and I tried to lean back, but her hands were stronger than you'd think. She had opened her mouth and pressed it to mine, deep and soft the smell of liquor and sweat and vomit. I feel like the whole, while you were reading that, I was just holding my breath and then it's like, <laughs> wow. So I should have said this was on prom night when, when she disappeared. That's why the fancy dress and everything. So oh, these wow. outsider loner kids are hanging out at a graveyard and, and, and then she comes from the prom. So. Mm. So, so, and this one is set in North Carolina and you're in North Carolina mm-hmm. and to the Bones is set in West Virginia and you were in West Virginia. Can we talk a little bit about that relationship between with place and what that makes possible in a book? Place is really important for me. I love world building. My, my very first book was science fiction and I do love, I teach classes in world building and I, and I love that. And I think for contemporary fiction, just as much to get the feel, the, you know, the, the grit and, reality of a place is so important for me. So I set things in places I know. Mm. Uh, to the Bones is set in a, a version of a, a coal mining town that I 
lived and worked in, in North Central West Virginia. And so the rivers are roughly those rivers, the hills are roughly those hills. And so everything feels very alive for me because I can look out and I can see these things. I can I can see the shape of the land. And the same with North Carolina. I My books are either North Carolina or West Virginia, though the two places I've spent my adulthood. And so for in the back, in the lonely backwater, the lake is, is patterned on Lake Carr, where I sailed. And so the, the woods, the, the lake itself, how it was formed, how it rises and falls, the islands in it are, are based on that. And so these places are both imaginary and not imaginary for me. They're very, very real, but I put, you know, new names and I shape them as I want. You know, I turn, you know, move towns around and <laughs> things like that, which I can do. And I, I think I like to move in a real place. I, I I would have difficulty, I think, in setting something someplace I didn't know, which being said, I, I, I'm working on a book set in actually in Scotland. And that's why I went there for a month and mm. wandered around because I, I need to, I need to touch and smell and taste and yeah. So yeah, setting very, very, very important. And, and people who talk about Southern literature say Southern literature is especially place dependent. And I, I think that may be true. I guess I'm considered Southern, you know, mm. West Virginia being border, but yeah. You said you moved like places around and, and changed names and things. What, I guess, what can you change and what can't, or does it change from book to book? Does it change from what you need it to do? How do you decide what you can change and what, you know, needs to stay where it's placed? Well, the state's names stay the same, but the counties <laughs> are different. The towns are different. And some places are, are very real because they're close to a farm that I had, or they're close to a, a town where I work. But I, I do change things just because I want that ability to, you know, I want the courthouse to look like this. And the mm. one in this place actually doesn't. So I, you know, I, I, I sort of mash things together a bit from places I've been and, and stuff. And it's like, well, I, I really like that building. And I'm going to put that. And And some just are so evocative for me they have to stay the same i uh into the bones there's a the mansion that the coal barons have and it's patterned on a, an actual coal barons mansion in in this town because i mean i just see it in my head all the time i mean i i, I wonder what does it look like inside and so I, of course that's imaginary i made that part up but the outside i would drive by it nearly every day and so it, it's in my mind and so yeah that had to be the the mansion had to be that one although i did you know as i say take liberties with the inside oh wow and speaking of to the bones can you tell us a little bit about the sequel uh, i am working on a sequel and at the end of the, the book, the uh, sort of paranormal evil appears to have been vanquished. And the, the, you know, the good guys win, you know, the monster's dead, on we go. Well, not <laughs> entirely. The, the good people, being good people, didn't, didn't kill the monster. They thought they basically, you know, that he had been crippled enough that this was not a problem anymore. <laughs> and that's not the case. So in the next book, the, the powers that the, this family, the Kavanaugh family has that have allowed them to, you know, prey on this community for, for many generations have passed to the heir who was away at college. Oh, and the funny thing is I started writing this and it's going to end up in Ireland because uh, the, the, 
you know, the family came from there and they, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to go into all of that, but they're going to end up in Ireland. And I'm starting to write it. And I thought, of course, that the, the heir to the, the coal baron, say the, you know, these bad people, well, he was going to be the bad guy, right? <laughs> and I started writing in, in his head. And as I did, I realized, oh, no, no, he's not. The, he can't be because I got so interested in how he was dealing with these powers that he'd inherited that it's like, oh, okay, I think he's actually going to be the protagonist. Oh, I hadn't planned that. And that's fine because that's yeah. that's wonderful when, you know, the characters come alive. I mean, I already had continuing characters from the first book of Derek and Lorana, but I I had sort of thought because I, I haven't plotted this out in a, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, let the characters determine. And once he started talking, which is in the case of everything, once the characters start talking, I just get out of the way. You know, Maggie started talking, you know, and, and Lorana started talking and it just, you know, they, they sort of take over. So I'm having to rethink what I'm doing with that sequel, but it will take them to Ireland to search for the source of the powers of both the Kavanaugh's and Derek that came into conflict in the first book. And then we'll see if they're resolved in the second. I love that. And I love the listening to the characters and just seeing where they lead and where they take you. And I guess with that in mind, could we have a final reading from To the Bones, please? Okay, we've had um, sort of dark. So I'm going to give you a piece that is a bit lighter. There is a, a fair amount of humor in To the Bones. And it's rather dark humor sometimes. But uh, I should preface with that. It's Thanksgiving time. And Lorana has gone down to the Walmart to get supplies. And it's in the middle of a snowstorm. So the doors opened with a blast of warm air and the smell of popcorn and overcooked hot dogs and cinnamon and the fake pine scent of car air fresheners. Instead of stooped senior citizens in their blue vests, the greeters were all big guys, bruisers who could handle the doorbuster rush if it turned ugly. The crowd in front of her, thinned by the weather, quickly dispersed among the garish Christmas displays. Most were headed for the high-dollar sections. Lorana was not enticed by the rollback prices and bright colors. She saw people from the sweepstakes parlor, recognized others who had been high school classmates. Some were glassy-eyed and jovial with the bargain hunt. Some just threw up a hand before turning grimly back to the task of providing Christmas cheer. A woman she used to work with at PTA bake sales pretended not to see her. She could imagine their thoughts like they were tethered on balloons. Sad, sure, first Steve, then Dreama, but Lorana just won't let it go, writing letters to the editor and pestering the police and speaking at city council meetings. Maybe it was like cancer. They were afraid if you got too close, death would leap across and take one of their children. Women's wear had sweatpants on sale, and she slowed down, thinking she just might, just might. But she could get them at the Word of God rummage sale for a couple of bucks. In the men's department, people were stacking flannels in their buggies and tearing through a display of leather coats. I went by the sweepstakes, but it wasn't open. Lorana turned to face her accuser. We're closed for the holiday, Helen. I had the sign up all week. 
Not everyone has family, the turkey and trimmings. You should know. Helen Decker looked like Mrs. Claus, round-faced with her white hair up in a bun, but the temper lines between her eyebrows and bracketing her mouth were not jolly. We'll be open on Monday if the roads are. Monday. No way to make money, she sniffed, and Lorana wondered if she meant herself or the parlor owner. We might none of us be here Monday anyways. Excuse me? Helen leaned as close as the pile in her cart would allow. You've heard about the zombie. Excuse me? Lorana realized she had repeated herself and wondered if she was having an episode. The Christmas music repeated like that, the same song over and over, and she had an eerie feeling she was trapped inside that kind of loop. The living dead, like in the shows, we got one right here, and if you see one, there's sure to be others. Lorana tried not to giggle, thinking of roaches. She chewed on the inside of her lips so that a laugh didn't burst out. He was seen on Fish Camp Road, staggering along, all bloody. The Rotaheaver saw him, whole carload of them, eyewitnesses. Oh, Helen, really? Lorana reached out and touched her arm. Next thing you'll be saying, there's UFOs. You go ahead and mock, but it's the real deal. Missy and Buster and their kids, they all saw him. Head bashed in, walking all stiff-like. They hightailed it out of there and called the police, but of course they laughed at him. Until poor Jimmy Cooper. That zombie killed Jimmy, sucked the blood right out of his body. That would be a vampire. Lorana couldn't help herself, but all the time her mind was racing about who might have seen Derek. Nobody went down that road these days, no reason to with the camp evacuated for safety reasons after the mine spill. Well, maybe it's a vampire, but they don't come out in the daylight, do they? Anyway, Helen, zombies eat brains. Helen looked at her suspiciously. Be careful. That thing would have come right by your parlor. God knows where he is now. And this weather, I'm going to get my deals and go home. Got these new towels, got me some comforters. She looked sharply at Lorana's cart, which held only men's clothing. For Steve, she explained, wishing she'd thrown some other stuff on the cart so the contents weren't so visible. Divorced how long and you're still doing for him? We were married for 18 years, Helen. That don't go away. And he's having it rough. Again. Again. Yeah. Helen shook her head and pushed off. I wouldn't buy Steve a rope to hang himself, Lorana thought. No, that's not true. Quite. <laughs> oh, I do get the dark humor. <laughs> I think it comes across <laughs> quite well. Thank you so much for the reading and for your uh, for reading from two books and giving us even that much more to, to look forward to diving into. Before you go, can I ask, where can we buy the books? Like, is there a special bookstore in your heart or there's, is there somewhere that you would prefer that we buy them from? Where would you like us to get them from? Uh, well, for people in, in North Carolina, of course, I, I always move people towards Scuppernong Books or McIntyre's or Malaprops or many other uh, independent bookstores, Sunrise, so many. Uh, a new book called Pig City. I just love the name, Pig City <laughs> Books. Uh, you have to say that's just wonderful. But uh, of course, they're available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Target, 
uh, in the UK, Waterstones. Um, so uh, many, many, many outlets. And uh, I'm very excited to have these two books out. And I hope that people might enjoy them. Well, congratulations. And thank you again for reading to us and for answering our questions. It was such a joy to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.